welcome to the Discuss with Andy podcast. Here I am, sitting in my kitchen, discussing interesting topics with Andy. Andy, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Ollie. It's half term, I've got a new dog, so life is good. Ah, amazing. What's the dog's name? The dog's name is Mason. And He's having a little sleep because I've taken him out for a good run this morning. Good. And uh, what type of dog is it? It's a Kelpie, so an Australian sheepdog. Very lively, but the good thing is you let him off the lead. He runs off, but he comes back. That is very handy, having a dog that comes back to you. Good job. I'm really pleased for you, Andy. I uh, look forward to meeting Mason at some time in the near future. So what's the topic today? We're going to look at, you could say it's a bit of an old hat topic, but we're going to look at the issue of drugs and sport. And we're going to look at whether all the time you read about this drug scandal's killing sport, this is killing track and field, this is the biggest drug scandal ever, I'm 50, and I tried to list down the amount of drug scandals I've lived through with the biggest ones ever, and I got to 15. So, Andy, uh, drug taking, is this, is this a new phenomenon? Is it increased? When did it start? It's not a new phenomenon. They, they talk about the ancient Greeks and the ancient Olympics taking drugs. Obviously, the evidence for that might not be cast iron, might be a bit of an assumption. But we do know the first documented case at the Olympics was 1904, British-born American marathon runner Tom Hicks. He was a guy who was loaded up on strychnine and brandy to help him with the pain of the marathon. Right. In 1920 Olympics, sherry, raw eggs, which I guess weren't illegal, but they do show how people were looking for edges back in those times. It's been going on as long as there's been competitive sport. People have been trying to find ways to win, be it drug taking, be it, is it people like... Uh, is it people like Eric Little who were employed a coach so he could win at the Paris Games? I mean, that was considered bang out of order. There's all sorts of instances right from the beginning of sport, and it still goes on. And it's likely to continue for, for a long time, isn't it? It is, yeah. And so what we never see is the other side of the argument. Is drug taking really killing sport? I'm not entirely sure that it is. And if it's not, why is there so much time and effort spent in running a system to keep things in place? I mean, that's a great question. Is, is illegal drugs, kill, uh, drug taking, killing sports? So you're, you're thinking not, and uh, why, why is that? I think you see it a lot. There's a guy called Sean Ingle writes for The Guardian, and he, he's a good journalist. He writes some interesting stuff. But all the time, he's got to think of track and field. And he'll say that the reason for track and fields not being particularly highly visible or popular sport is because people don't like the association with performance enhancing drugs. What actually, the reason people don't watch track and field in big numbers is because they've never watched track and field in big numbers other than once every four years at the Olympics. So it's got nothing to do with drugs. It's just not a popular television sport. So... British Athletics, World Athletics, what's it called? You, uh, what, the IAAF? Yeah, that's the one. The, so have they got a job to do in terms of marketing their sport better and keeping up with the times? I, I think they do, but also I think you can, you can go back to the Industrial Revolution, you can go back to the growth of various sports. The sports that professionalised early, like football, are the ones that got hugely popular. 
the ones that ran as an amateur code for years and years and years missed their opportunity. And track and field was very much one of those that was run by the upper-class gentleman amateur for amateurs, and it's still paying the price for that today. There must be examples of sports that have turned professional in recent years that are now positively professional and, and making it in the professional world, though. When you look at, say, rugby union, went professional in 1995, having obviously resisted the lure of professionalism for so many years. But because of that, it will never be as big a game as football. Correct. But it's probably doing better than rugby league? Um, yeah, that's true. And I, I think that's a lot of that has to do with the geographical conditions. Um, it is really the stronghold of Yorkshire and Lancashire, obviously with other little pockets about of it. The amateur sports, it's not to say that they weren't successful and they weren't popular, but they never really captured the imagination of the wider public to the same extent. Yeah, well, I think I've been to a couple of athletics meetings, um, Commonwealth Games, and everybody seems to be there to support everybody. There doesn't seem to be that affiliation with getting hold of a team or an athlete, or you know, even if even if you go and support, you know, uh, um, Bingley Harriers, um, it, you you never kind of see a Bingley Harrier supporter going, oh, God, you know, bad mouthing another <laughs> another runner. <laughs> no, you, you don't see them waving their Bingley Harrier flag, or in my case, their Wadak flag. Um, so there isn't that tribalism there that goes with it. And it means that, of course, it's international athletics that has the real primacy. And you only see international athletics on the TV once uh, once every four years. Yeah. Did you watch the athletics this week? Uh, I didn't watch the athletics this week, no. Sorry about that. Did you know there was any athletics on? I've seen it on the, I've seen it on the app, but I, haven't, I didn't know it was live on the TV, no. Yeah, I think... I only really knew it was live on the TV and it was only available on the red button because I had a daughter who was really into athletics, so it was on in our house. Yeah. But I could have taken the names of the athletes who did well that night, Jacob Ingrid Britson, um, the Laura Muir who set a British record in 1500 metres. There was an amazing performance by Ethiopia's Segai who broke the uh, indoor world 3000 metre record. Um, sorry, not 3,000-metre, 1,500-metre record. Yet, I could put pictures of those up in my lessons and nobody would know who they were. But listening to you, you're excited by those performances. You, you, you want to see those performances. Is it that they can't produce those performances regularly enough and if they did, it would lessen the effect of it? Um, I don't think it is that. I think it's an odd one, athletics, because in some, so many ways it's the real purity of what sport's all about. It's who can run the fastest, who can jump the furthest, who can jump the highest. It's that basic elemental human competition. But people enjoy running, but they don't seem to enjoy watching it. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so we, let, let's get back to the topic of drugs. So yeah. plenty of drug taking happens, um, I assume, um, by the by the nature that people always want to get better and get an edge over their competition. Uh, there's a testing regime. Can you tell us a bit more about that testing regime and, and if it's effective? I think the testing regime 
it's a tricky one. Obviously, the World Anti-Doping Agency will tell you that it is effective, that they're catching more cheats than ever. However, if you look at, we take an idea, of the, in 2011, WADA did a little bit of research where there was these truly anonymized surveys, which they carried out of two elite athletics competitions. Within those surveys that were taken by the athletes, 57% of competitors admitted doping in the previous 12 months. That's a huge now, number. What, yeah, that's enormous, isn't it? Yeah. And we can assume as well that people would have been worried about whether they were truly anonymous, these surveys. So it's probably true to say that the figures may be higher than that. Now, WADA tried to cover that up and they tried uh, to get it not published. It subsequently came out. And when you look at things like that, you do think, really, has this stopped? Yeah, clearly it's uh, it's not been a big enough deterrent if 57% of people are are jumping in the <laughs> jumping in that camp. Yeah, it's and you look at it, even if you look at it on a cost basis, um, if you look at the size of WADA's budget and the money it gets from various government organisations, it is the most expensive and uh, monetarily inefficient pro- uh, prevention scheme um, in the world. If you think about the amount of money that we spend on um, trying to stop people taking dangerous drugs such as heroin, it's nowhere near proportionally the same amount of money. So it's expensive and it's ineffective. So is it the best use of resources? Have you got some figures there to go with it? Yeah, no, I don't necessarily have. Only I can't give you the figures, I'm afraid. No, that's all right. Just thought I'd ask because <laughs> it's you've you've uh, you've put a big claim in there again. <laughs> Wada is now the new Matthew Saeed. <laughs> I can tell you how many blood samples and urine samples they took in 2019. Go for it. Okay, 2019 they took 231,000 blood and urine samples. That's got to take some time, effort, and money. I am fascinated by lockdown because uh, the figures for the same period in 2020 were down to 110,000. When you're in lockdown and you're somewhere well out of the way where you know you're going to get tested, what a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, you'd, you'd get around, wouldn't you? You just It's not as if they can't be anywhere. Yeah, that, well, they can't be everywhere anyway. And if you are somewhere remote, and of course a lot of the endurance runners are from very remote regions, it's kind of free range to go and uh, experiment, isn't it? Are they hiding behind the fact that you shouldn't be travelling to, to different countries or are they just not allowed to travel to different countries and therefore they can't I, do it? Yeah, I don't think the testers can travel. Yeah. So they're locked down to the same extent as we're locked down. So are we, are we expecting a big boom of, of PBs and national and international records coming up? Yes. <laughs> Sit on the fence there, Andy. Have a think about it. <laughs> I think we are, yeah. I mean, the thing you haven't got in your favour is when they knock on your door, you're going to have to be in, aren't you? You can't really pretend you're out down the shops. No. no. But they've got to get to your door to start with. But, I mean, there are, there is a, a long, long list of athletes who have been banned for missing three drug tests in, in 12 months, isn't there? Um, there is, and there's a couple sort of big names at the moment. If you look at uh, Christian Coleman and the Nigerian Bahraini female 400 meter runner, whose name I can't remember, 
um, are both uh, in trouble for those types of things at the moment as well. And the, the ban for that is, is, what, two years or something, isn't it? No, it's usually a year for three missed, um, for three missed tests. Which doesn't seem... Uh, the risk is, is not outweighing the reward. Yeah, I suppose from a sponsorship point of view, it probably doesn't do you any good. Your sponsors are probably going to drop you, aren't they? Um, you've then got to come back and you're always under that cloud. However... Once again, people are prepared to take that risk. Sauer NASA is her name. Is there anything you'd like to see the testers doing uh, to make it more effective? I don't know whether I'd like to see them continue testing or whether as we move to with recreational drugs, more of a system where actually it's about education and prevention to make things safe rather than this blunt policy of if you take drugs, you're going to get banned. I think it showed with the prohibition of things like alcohol back in the States in the 20s. If you look at the so-called war on drugs and trying to prohibit drugs, the policies haven't worked. Why do we think that they work in athletics as well? That's a good point. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah, surely there is education that goes on, especially with the youth athletes. If we can get the youth athletes knowing that drugs are, are not good for them, um, then, then, then the bubble goes out. The drug-taking bubble, you know, disappears. It does, but if you think about top-level sport in general, top-level sport isn't good for you. With the training load that you have physically, your bodies, we see how much they degrade over time. You see people limping around when they're in their forties. You see some of the psychological damage that comes with that. So I don't think that. They necessarily see these athletes as these drugs are going to be dangerous. When you're young, you get told about the long-term health concerns that might come with something. You just brush things like that off when you're in your 20s. You get to my age, and all of a sudden you start to get worried about it. Yeah, true. But we've managed to we've managed to get things like safety within within certain sports. So um, helmets when you're skiing and. Uh, helmets in in cricket. There won't be kids play, that will that will have they will they will have played cricket um, for maybe ten years and never not wearing worn a helmet to bat. People um, aren't breaking that rule, are they? No, they're not. But if we look at drug taking, people seem over and over again prepared to to break that rule. And actually, rather than spending money on testing, can you spend money on a joined up system whereby? Drugs that athletes like to take are tested, where there's research done to see whether they actually are effective, whether they're able to be administered in controlled doses. Looking at the problem that way rather than just an outright banning that doesn't seem to have brought any success. Right, well, kind of moving on to <laughs> whether we can, whether banning um, performance enhancing drugs makes sports fair, I suspect, there, and um, whether we can have them within the system. I think it's one of the most bizarre reasons given for banning drugs is that they make sport unfair. Because as soon as you've got a winner and a loser, the whole point of something becomes about making it unfair. It's unfair that I used to play rugby against people who weighed three stone more than me and were a second quicker over 100 metres. That's fundamentally unfair. 
it's fundamentally unfair that I'm never going to make it to the NBA because I'm five foot ten and a half. Sport is about creating mismatches, and that can be through coaching, through training, through inherited physical characteristics, whatever it might be. So this it makes it unfair. It's just not something that I think is a particularly good argument. But we're we're trying to create mismatches of um, accepted accepted mismatches, not unacceptable mismatches. But if you think about this, if you take this to a sort of logical conclusion, you go altitude training to raise your levels of red blood cells to improve your oxygen carrying capacity. You can do that as well by, if you're wealthy, you can sleep in an oxygen tent around your bed in your house. Yeah. All of that is surely making things unfair. Some people can afford to go altitude training, some people can't. Some people can afford to sleep in an altitude tent around their bed. Some people can't. So why are some things banned but not others? So is there an answer to that question, Andy? I don't think there's any quick answer. If you look at all the things that come into sports to try and improve performance, they're all there to make it unfair. Look at Nike's new shoe, the four percenters, the alpha flies. They are there purely to improve performance. Now, the way that they work is that for the same training cost, if you're a responder to the shoe technology, you'll get a 4% improvement in your time without having to do anything else. You stick to the same training regime, regime, you put these trainers on, you get a 4% increase in performance. That's a phenomenal increase. So you've got all these inconsistencies in policy across all sports, some things that improve performance are allowed. Some things that don't, uh, some things that improve performance are banned. Creatine and caffeine fundamentally improve performance. They're both legal. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But those trainers, they they were banned initially, weren't they? Until they became um, open to the public. Well, they were banned very briefly until everyone realised just how important Nike are if you want to keep AIAAF funded and run. <laughs> just, just a passing comment there, I'm sure, Andy. <laughs> well, I think um, we all know that without Nike, world athletics would be in all sorts of trouble financially. So when we talk about killing sport, are there any um, drugs killing sport? Is there um, Are there any examples where... It, it, you know, you can say it's definitely not killing the sport. I think the best example of it is really American sports. If you look at the NFL, the American Football League, it is the most popular sport in America. It is the richest and most profitable sports league in the world. It's not signed up to the World Anti-Doping Agency, which means that they're not subject to World Anti-Doping Testing regimes. They've got their own fairly limited testing and their own fairly limited range of punishments. But there's been an acceptance for many, many years that it's okay to take drugs in that league. It certainly hasn't affected the popularity of it. Baseball went through a bit of a scandal with the so-called steroid years with Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and people like that. Their records have got asterisks by them in the in the record books. But again, actually, what they were doing at the time wasn't illegal, which is why their records are still there. Baseball, despite the fact it has lost some popularity over the last 20 years, 
is still wildly popular in the States. American football, who don't sign up to the World Anti-Doping Association, have their own own um, their own ways of testing. Is that the same? Are there league? There aren't leagues below the NFL. I suppose it's a college no, system, isn't there? Not there's college football. It's the next uh, level down, um, where they're probably not tested as rigorously. So it'd be interesting to know if there are any figures on uh, positive drug tests or whether there are any drug tests will stop. I do remember reading an article once, some time ago, about the percentage of athletes getting signed from college who had been banned for taking drugs, um, right. being signed quicker and, and getting bigger deals um, with the NFL because they were prepared to go that extra mile and that was the character they were looking for. Um, I think, well, I don't know if we're recording now, there is a massive issue in South African club rugby and you've got the same issue there with people desperately trying to get a professional contract. Yeah. They also say with... Uh, Rugby union at this level, there's a lot of drug taking in the leagues below the Premiership, with players desperate to make it. Well, that would be a sad state of affairs if, we, if that happened, wouldn't it? I think if you look at the Welsh Premier League, that's probably where the highest figures are. I think in terms of who gets caught. Are there any examples of where drug taking, ha- um, illegal drug taking, has killed the sport? I don't think so. I mean, the sport that most people associate with drug taking is professional road cycling. We look at the high-profile Lance Armstrong case, seven Tour de France's, seven yellow jerseys, absolute national hero, particularly for his work in coming back from cancer. We then find out that this was a complete sporting fraud. You watch the Tour de France now, it doesn't appear to have lost any of its popularity at all. It's still by far the biggest race in the world. It still draws roadside crowds in the millions of big television audiences. And the Lars Armstrong scandal was just one of many in cycling. You think about the Festina scandal before that. Um, you think about people like Eddie Merckx, widely considered the best uh, cyclist ever. He's tested positive in his time and no one passed an island. Well, yeah, I mean, it is... It... I, I watch the Tour de France more than ever now. <laughs> it's just a, just because it's it's an amazing an amazing event that the athletes um, just do things that I just possibly I, I, it's impossible for me to even think about trying to do what they do. And the fact that you said that that it's impossible for us to even think about what they do to get our heads around it, which that's what we want to watch. We want to watch this absolute brutal racing up these brutal mountains day after day after day. That's what we expect. That's what the TV wants to show. Is there any, uh, you know, is there any doubt at all that that's why they need to take drugs? Certainly to win, they will. Yeah, I suspect. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Are there any more examples where um, banning performance-enhancing drugs would would make sport fair or unfair? I think ultimately, what makes sport unfair is money, which is often the root cause of everything. If you look at Team GB's Olympic success, it's been very much focused on sports, obviously, where we sit down, as the Australians always say about us, you're very good at winning sports when you sit down. Rowing, track cycling, sailing. And these are sports that really... Oh, oh, Mason. <laughs> Joe and Lily 
Is everybody still alive? Yes, everyone's still alive. He was lying very peacefully next to me in his crate on the sprinted to the door. Amazing. Right, where were we? We'll leave that in. Talking about uh, other instances of drugs making sport. Yeah, we were sitting down, weren't we? We were sitting down doing our sports. Yes, we were. So you think there's a direct correlation where we've uh, we've ploughed money into those, therefore we're good at them? All you've got to do is look at the Olympic medals table and very much wealthy countries make up the top ten and poor countries come further down the list. So ultimately making sport unfair, so it's not going to change anything if you legalise performance enhancing drugs then? No, this whole idea that it uh, makes the playing field level is just an utter nonsense. There is no way that Kenya are, are going to win any Olympic medals in sailing. It's just not going to happen. They haven't got the money to do that. We have got the money to do that. We've got the money to build some velodromes. We've got the money to buy bikes at £10,000 a pop. We've got the money for the whole sport science and performance analysis stuff that goes behind it. Most countries don't. That's not a reason to legalise performance enhancing drugs, then. No, but it, what it does do, though, is it refutes the argument that drugs make sport unfair. You can claim, actually, that they would make it fair. If you look at sleeping in an altitude tent and the rise in hematocrit, you can do that cheaply, safely and effectively with an injection of EPO. So why is one method allowed and one method isn't, where actually if you're allowed to do whichever method you have the money to do, sport would be fair? That is an interesting point. I mean, there are some um, sports that are certainly maybe lower down, sort of in motor racing, where they use the same cars. Yes. They've got identical engines, and it's about the driver. So who becomes the best driver? And possibly, if you're allowed to tune the cars a little bit, who's the best mechanic? Yeah. Whereas at the moment, Lewis Hamilton can win one year in the best car. The next year, he might his car might not be the best car, so he won't win. Yeah, I mean, you've opened a whole, whole different crate of worms there haven't you in terms of trying to make sport fair um, I mean we're not trying to stop technolo- technological advances here are we because we, we like the fact that Nike are making amazing shoes um, and some of, some of the advantages with that are fair to everybody say for instance um, the track in, in athletics if they're making that a better track for people to go faster that's not disadvantaging anybody, is it? No, and I think you probably get that with the shoe argument as well, that Nike obviously had the jump on everybody and were a couple of years ahead with their technology. The other companies have now to some degree caught up, they've now got their own versions of these shoes. You're seeing fantastic world record performances, and I, I read a quote from a sports scientist called Yanis Pitsaudis this week saying, I don't think anybody wants to watch a shoe equipment battle out on the track. And I'm thinking, you know what, actually, I think it's probably created more good, positive publicity for athletics than anything has in the last 10, 20 years. Actually, people are interested in that. They find that story interesting. Yeah, so uh, when I did my my one and only marathon, um, on the start line, uh, the same shoe, the Nike Vaporfly, um, Alpha Fly was it Alpha Fly? 
Uh, there's three for Fly and Alpha Fly. I don't quite know which one's which anymore. No. They, I mean, the, the top runners had them. You, they were obvious. Yeah. They were the same colour. They stuck out like a sore thumb. And, and they were everywhere. I didn't see them afterwards, but, you know, at the beginning I saw them. Um, and then they ran off very fast. <laughs> yes. But it clearly, it clearly is something that everybody's buying into. And if more people are running because they feel like they can get... get a bit of return, then then that's a good thing, surely. It is. I think actually that's one of the reasons road running park runs are hugely popular nowadays, which I think we talked about before. Yeah. And if you go and watch a 10k road race now, even just one that's essentially a bum race, half the competitors will have a version of that Nike Shield. So it's been brilliant in promoting the sport in general. Yes, it's Nike who mainly benefited from that with the amount of shoes they sold. But you can't have done the sport any harm. No. So is drug taking affecting the popularity of certain sports and are the sponsors walking away from them? It's like in track and field athletics. I think there is an argument for saying that they're not as popular maybe as they were and that sponsors in particular are scared about associating themselves with people. I don't think it's such a big deal in track and field because the only real sponsors track and field athletes get are chief sponsors so they're sponsored by nike or they're sponsored by adidas or puma you don't really see many other major corporate brands from other fields attached to it obviously you see kjt and the yogurt but and i think maybe little does it sponsor the uh, G, uh the british olympic committee as far as i can see Do you know what? i was thinking it was spa you always see spa on the number you do see spars on the competitions, don't you, on the numbers? Yeah, yeah. that's true. But, yeah, but it's, it's few and far between. players, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. I mean, so, are they walking away? Or are they... I, I, I don't think they were ever really there. We come back to this thing that, despite the purity of athletics as that real sort of sporting contest, people just aren't particularly interested in it. And I don't know whether that's because it's such a mishmash of events. You've got a person running up with a big tall pole trying to go over something. You've got somebody trying to spin around and throw a massive lump of iron. You probably can't see that very well if you're in the stadium. You've got some people jumping over barriers, some just running along on the flat. I'm not sure that actually it works as a coherent sporting event. Is it possible to safely legalise performance-enhancing drugs um, to try and make this a fair playing field? I'm not sure it is. It is. It's the same if you look at the issue again of legalising recreational drugs. It's so emotive and you would have to have a really well-organised, joined-up programme. So rather than spending the money on drug prevention, can you spend it on legalising, testing, researching, finding out safe dosages, and then having them administered under control conditions by doctors. The problem is, and the history of doping does tell us this, you'll set rules about what you can and can't take and the amounts that you can and can't take. And of course, people will immediately start to break those rules. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you put a rule in, somebody will look to stretch it, won't they? Yeah, of course they will. There, there will be a drug that isn't legal that will become legal. Um, sorry, there'll be a drug that isn't legal that people will hear this works, so they'll start taking that one. 
<laughs> just uh, it, we're going to go around in circles here, aren't we? Well, well, this is what I mean, but this is why we never have any decent arguments about this because there aren't necessarily any clear answers. Well, yeah, true. I mean, how's how's the press portraying all this? Because clearly, they've got a big part to play. Uh, the only thing you ever read in the press is you must ban drugs. We must have a level playing field. Yeah, I've got a great great quote here from uh, Semco. Uh, about the rule of strict liability where athletes are legally responsible for what they consume. Okay, we cannot, without blinding reasoning, cause move one millimetre from strict liability. If we do, the battle to save sport is lost. I didn't realise that sport was in danger. And that's what I can't really get. I think you can probably say, right, we will legalise, we will research the products, make sure that these are the ones that are effective give you the rights to use them. I don't think you'll be any worse off than the system we've got now. I mean, sport is big business. To say that we've lost sport, can you? what, what would be the top three industries in the, in the world? Would, yeah, sport, would, sport, would sport be there? <laughs> I know it contributes something like 4% to the British economy. It, it's an enormous business, particularly when you're building everything else to it. The, uh, the media coverage, television, satellites, marketing, business, sponsorship. It's enormous, and I don't see it being lost. You look at the amount of people playing sport, particularly organised team sport. Well, yes, we know that that's down and there's problems there, but it doesn't seem to affect the amount of people watching organised team sport on the TV. Well, yeah, or the amount of money that's going into some of them. Yes. It's just crazy, isn't it? Yes. How are we going to wrap this up, Andy? We're, um, have you got a, a final a final piece that you'd like to see, maybe how you'd like to see it going, or um, a question, an open-ended question that our listeners might like to go away and think about? I would just like to see a much more open debate on this subject, and I would like to see people realise that all these drug scandals aren't killing sport, because the basic human nature, unfortunately, is I'm playing sport, if you want to get to the top of sport, you are used to doing just about anything to get there. Quite often, particularly in inter- uh, top-level Olympic athletes, particularly multiple gold medalists, display sociopathic tendencies. That's what the Great British Medal Project tells us. Um, <laughs> it would be good if people actually looked at some of the other arguments and said, you know what, it isn't as clear-cut as just banning drugs. There is a bit more to it. That's a nice, nice point to end on, Andy. Uh, what's next week's topic, Andy? I've got you again, haven't I? Yeah, next week did decide, didn't we? But I really can't remember. That's all right. I think we'll do a a, a review of our season. I don't know what year it was, but we're going to review at some point the uh, the Winchester League winning season. I've got I've got some stuff filed away somewhere, so I'm sure I can uh, come up with something. Thank you very much for. Um, for a very insightful chat some clearly some open-ended questions still there and i don't think we're ever going to get to the bottom of um trying to make sport a level playing field certainly not around the drug scene always a pleasure thank you always a pleasure remember if it was always a level playing field in sport everything would end in a draw wow we'll leave it there you have a good week andy and i'll speak to you soon all right bud cheers cheers bye-bye